Have you ever tried to put together a puzzle with a child? It really is quite an experience. You have to sort through all the pieces, and you're going, no, that piece doesn't go there. Yes, uh, this piece does. Uh, Typically, in my house, what often happens is, early on anyhow, uh, at some points, they'll they'll turn their little hands uh, into little hammers, and they'll get that piece on there, and it fits. Compromises the integrity of the puzzle. At which point, I typically explain, you see, The key to doing a puzzle properly is finding a few key pieces. Those corner pieces and and the edges. Assuming you don't have puzzles like Jerry where there are no edges. Uh, but, but, But there are corners and edges and then you work to the middle. You fill it all in. We come to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 this morning. And what we'll find is that Jesus says the key to understanding the whole Bible was not a few key pieces, but one key person, himself. He's going to say that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That's shorthand for your whole Hebrew Bible. He's saying, the whole Bible is about me. I'm the one who makes its big picture clear. That's your main idea this morning. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And I want to exhort you, in light of that, to receive His grace. To believe and obey His Word. Outline is there before you. We will pray and get started this morning. Father, this is a joyous morning. We come this Sunday, as we do each and every Sunday, to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And as we come, we confess that indeed we have sinned against you this week, even this morning on the way here. We still need the blood of Jesus as much today It's the first day we came to believe in him. Some of us have come full of hope and delight, ready to hear your gospel proclaimed once more. Some of us have drug ourselves in here against our will, begrudgingly. Others come desperate this morning, sympathizing with the Psalmist in chapter 88 who said, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth onward, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My only companion is darkness. Some of us feel this way, Lord. Some of us are still feeling as if Jesus is in the tomb on Friday. But Lord, even in the midst of our pains and our struggles, uh, remind us once more this morning that Christ is alive. 
that the tomb is empty, that there is hope beyond the grave, and you are our ever-present help in time of need right now. We thank you that by your grace we are saved, and by your grace we are strengthened and sustained. We can face tomorrow because Christ lives. We come to worship today because Christ lives. We want to hear from you right now because He is alive. We pray that you would, by your Spirit, bring your Word to our hearts. Help us to hear, to believe, turn from our sins and our preconceived notions of what you're like and to submit ourselves to your word. It is in the name of our King Jesus that we pray. Amen. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5 and starting with verse 17. Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is moving into the body of the Sermon on the Mount after giving to us a description of what his disciples are like after reminding us that it all starts with poverty of spirit coming to him with empty hands and faith and saying, Jesus, you are my king. He says, once you've done that, you're in the kingdom of heaven and you will start to look like this. You will be blessed. You will be salt. You are salt and light. And so now he's beginning to turn his attention to the rest of the crowds and the Pharisees in particular. And he's going to tell us, well, everything you thought about the law it comes up a little bit short. The law is much harder to keep than you ever thought. And in light of what I'm about to say, about how I'm going to teach you that the law isn't just about its letters, it goes deeper than its letters to your heart, in light of what I'm about to say, don't get it twisted. Don't get confused. You see, What he's saying is, you're going to say, well, this is what Jesus says, and here is what the Old Testament says, and these two things, they don't go together, right? To try to 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 force them together, you've got to get like a kid with a hammer fist and that puzzle piece. And what Jesus is saying, don't do that. The Old Testament and the New Testament are not at odds with one another. The words of Moses are not at odds with my words, Jesus, saying don't even think about doing that. Because all of it is God's word. It says, I came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And you notice there in verse 18, he says, the law is not going to pass away. Not an iota. See, Jesus believes, why would Jesus take such pains to make sure we we don't sort of toss out the Old Testament or think of it as if it has nothing to do with our New Testament totally disconnected? Well, it's because he believes the Bible is God's Word. Jesus believed his Bible to the extent that he's telling us that the least stroke of the pen is God's Word. 
Iota is the smallest letter in Hebrew. It's yod. It looks like this, like a little angle almost. Saying all of it is inspired by God, and I believe it, and you should believe it. God's word doesn't fail. It doesn't return void. You understand how incredible this is? That God has spoken to us in his word, and yes, Jesus' Bible was uh, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Our Part of our Bible is completed with the writing of the New. But Jesus believed the Old, affirmed its authority, and commissioned the writing of the New. And he believes in its authority also. This is incredible. It means that we don't have to guess about what God is like. We don't have to guess about His will and His ways. No, no, no. He, he's told us what, we is like, what he's like. There was a question that we used to ask my kids, still do sometimes, uh, in terms of catechism. We would say, um, how do we know what God is like? The answer was, the Bible alone tells us what God is like. The Bible is God's perfect word. He tells us about himself there. And words are really, really important for relationship. You say to me, Pastor, I don't think that's true. I don't think words are, are really essential. First of all, you're probably not married. But, but secondly, secondly, let's say, you're, you're, you know, uh, I'm a single person, I'm not married, but I go home and I have a dog. And my dog, he loves it when I come home. He, he, he wags his tail, he runs to the door, he jumps up and down, he, he looks at me with those deep puppy dog eyes. He even gives me a kiss on the cheek. And we, we cuddle up there on the couch and we are content, my dog and I. And I think to myself, this is love. I don't have any need for words. Well, imagine with me, if you, you would, that you, you went home this afternoon from church and you opened the door and your dog casually said to you, What's up? Want to go get some ice cream? I submit to you that your dog's ability to communicate and to speak to you would fundamentally change your relationship with your dog. Friends, likewise, we are not left like that old parable, you know, the four blind men and the elephant. We all, nobody can really know what God is like except for the person telling the parable, right? Uh, we're all kind of blind, just groping around, trying to find our way to God. One person puts his hands on the elephant's side and says, God is like a wall. The other one grabs the elephant's tail and says, God is, is like a snake. Uh, another one uh, puts his arms around the elephant's leg and says, oh, God is like a tree. And you know, they all have part of the truth. And really, that's how all world religions work. They all just have a part of the truth, and it's just one God and kumbaya. We're just left to figure out what he's like. The problem is, well, twofold with that illustration. One, the person giving it, they know that it's an elephant, right? So uh, that's a problem. Big presupposition there. But the second problem is, is what Christianity says, is we are not left to ourselves groping about in the dark. Christianity says the elephant speaks. God has spoken to us. He has told us what He is like in His Word. And that fundamentally changes our relationship with Him. I wonder how many of us Christians walk around and 
go, oh, if God would only speak to me. He has in his word. Friends, if you want to know what God is like, take up and read the word of God. We live in such a place and at such a time in history that it is easily accessible to you. Many of you probably have Bibles gathering dust somewhere on a shelf. Take an evening off from Netflix. See what God has said. And there you will find that there is hope beyond the walls of this world. God has spoken to us in his word. We Christians love the Bible because it's the Word of God, and we believe it's the Word of God because Jesus believed it was the Word of God. And Jesus loved his Bible. Remember where we find him in Luke chapter 2? He's in the temple, and he's listening to uh, the people teach, and he's answering them and questioning them, and everybody is awed by him. And how does he respond to the temptations of the devil in Matthew 4? We just saw this recently. He quotes Scripture. He says, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus loves the Scriptures. The Word of God to Jesus was his very life. It sustained him. Where does Jesus look in his times of greatest need? On his way to the cross, he says, the Son of Man must go as it is written of him. And when he is feeling the disjoint in relationship, he's feeling out of fellowship with his Father as he hangs breathless and bleeding, what does he do? What does he cry out? He quotes Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus loved the Word of God. And He looked to it to strengthen Himself. That's where He went to hear from the Lord. It's where you ought to go also. Peter tells us in the New Testament, in his writing, he says, I was there with Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. He says, but we have something more sure than that. This written word. Because the scriptures are better than if you could go back into history and walk with Jesus his whole life and record it all on your iPhone and then get in your time machine and come back and watch that on video, Peter says that the Scripture is more reliable than your iPhone video. That's what he's getting at. That's how authoritative. These are the very words of God. Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, this is why we preach and teach from the whole Bible. This is why we walk through books like Exodus and Leviticus and Judges. 
Because these books tell us what God is like. God has told us what He is like in His Word. This is why we practice expository preaching, walking through, verse by verse, books of the Bible. Because it's, we want to hear what God has said. And if we come and we just listen to uh, some creative type, maybe even me, get up and tell you my ideas and, and find a, a few uh, texts that will support my arguments, you know, pull parts of the Bible out like little pull quotes, and then stand my argument up on them, we're in danger of only hearing my ideas rather than what God has said. You see, when it comes to rightly understanding God's Word, it's a little bit like real estate. Location, location, location. Context, and you're reading your Bible and in reading any book, is king. And so we want to understand what God has said. That's why often, and right now, this morning, we set the stage before we get into the text. We will say, hey, what is going on here? And so in Matthew, we know that he has laid out Jesus' credentials as king in those first four chapters. And now, in chapters 5 through 9, he's bringing us into contact with the power of the king through Jesus' words and his works. He wants us to see that Jesus teaches authoritatively in the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we're at right now. And that Jesus heals authoritatively in chapters 8 and 9 when he does his works of mercy. Matthew wants us to recognize that Jesus is the King. The Messiah King who was prophesied long ago. And so we come to our section in the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 17 through 20. And we find Jesus saying that the Old Testament, well, it's not going to be at odds with the New. It's not going to be at odds with Jesus. That the two will be consistent together because Jesus fulfills the law. And the goal of this sermon we must keep in view because I think it's twofold. And the first of these is what's going to be most primarily in view today. The first purpose or goal of the Sermon on the Mount is to make you and I really, really afraid. It's to make us recognize that we deserve hell. That we cannot be made right with God by our own efforts. That big question, who can enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus is about to, in our text, and answer it in not so many words as no one. The second thing we've said the Sermon on the Mount does is it gives to us a description of of Jesus' disciples, those who have been transformed by his grace. We're not going to spend as much time there today, but just enough to say, when we receive the grace of God, when we truly come to believe in Jesus, it changes the way we live. We live according to his word. And this is the fruit of the change that's within us. When we have received grace, we will bear the fruit of grace. At any rate, Jesus this morning is going to drive us to himself, but not at the expense of invalidating the Old Testament. He wants us to know that we need to believe our Bibles. The problem for the Pharisees is that they have not believed their Bibles enough. They haven't read them well enough or understood them rightly. Quick word of application. I think it is popular to take a buffet approach to the Bible. 
sort of a Golden Corral's a buffet, right? right? You go in and, and you, I don't know what they have there, uh, but, but you go in and you're like, crab legs, I like crab legs, I, you know, I like steak, oysters, I don't like those. Uh, what did I say? It was snot, snot wrap something. I don't know, I don't like oysters. Uh, so you don't, I leave that there, I don't want that, I don't want this, I do want that. And so we come to the Bible with that sort of an attitude and say, well, well God really did say, love your neighbor, that's nice. God didn't say no sex until you're married. I don't like that so much. You know, God did say I will have mercy. We don't we don't like Let me see here. I'll find one for you right here. I should have done this ahead of time. Uh, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. Jesus is using metaphors here, just just to be clear. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. We We don't like that. But friends, if we come to the Bible and pick and choose, to paraphrase Augustine, it's, It's not the Bible or God that we believe. It is ourselves. If you only believe the parts of the Bible that you like, you really don't believe the Bible. You believe yourself. If you only have a Jesus that operates according to the things that that you like, you've just created an idol in your own image. An imaginary Jesus that only exists in your imagination. Real Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible. And the real Jesus believed the Bible as God's Word. And He came to perfect it, to fulfill it. And He points out to the crowds here that God's Word demands perfection. Look with me again. We'll do verse 17. We'll backtrack a little bit. It's a small section. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, he's getting ready, this is poetic language, he's speaking in contrast, so just ahead of time. The least don't get into heaven, just so you know, just keep that in your mind. It's poetic. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever will be called great, whoever he does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For, and here's, here's the contrast, here's what we need to really, the nub of it. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom, never enter the kingdom of heaven. This would have been the line that caused the murmuring to erupt among the crowds. People start whispering to their neighbor. It would have been jarring or shocking if you ever slid your feet along the floor and then you put your finger to somebody else and zaps them a little bit. It would, it would have zapped everybody. Their eyes would have gotten wide. You go, why? 
Well, let's note about the scribes and the Pharisees. It doesn't sound like too big a deal to us because we go, scribes, Pharisees, those are the bad guys. They oppose Jesus. But again, we, we must situate ourselves historically if we are to hear the tone of this text. The Pharisees and the scribes, I shouldn't have said Sadducees, just scribes, so the scribes and the Pharisees are the good people. They're the creme de la creme of religious folk. They're the best of the best. Right? The scribes are to the law as Michael Jordan is to basketball. Right? The Pharisees are to righteousness as Tom Brady is to football. They are the goats of Judaism. And what Jesus is saying, right, you hear him, he's saying, if you are not greater than the greatest of all time at being righteous, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You hear the weight of his words. It would have created a feeling of angst and fear among those who were listening to him. How do I enter into the kingdom of heaven? Jesus sums up for us. Hey, this is how you get in. Verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you see, remember point, point one of the goal of the sermon, how this shows us our spiritual bankruptcy. We cannot, no matter how good we are, make ourselves right with God. You cannot, no matter how well you live, earn God's favor. Can't do it. And I think you will be the first to admit that you're not perfect. All of us have followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve and chosen to take up arms against God, ruling ourselves according to our will and our ways instead of submitting ourselves to His Word and His ways. All of us deserve to die the death of traitors. We have set ourselves up as God's enemies. The punishment should be death stretched out across eternity in hell. And Jesus is saying to those who are listening, you want to know how to get into heaven? Be perfect. And they're all going, what? This is impossible. Who then can be saved? There, there was a Jewish saying back in the day, if only two people get into heaven, surely one will be a scribe and the other a Pharisee. Circulating at the time of Jesus. And here he is saying, you've got, you got to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Everyone stands condemned. And yet... Jesus does speak to us a word of hope. And he speaks it back in verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I want to use the law part of this for a second. Uh, there are two ways to fulfill the law, Right? One is, let's say, stopping at a stop sign. Uh, one way to fulfill the law is when you come to the stop sign, uh, you stop. And I mean completely. 
Not a rolling stop like some of y'all do. A complete stop. The same thing. The other way to fulfill the law is if you come to the stop sign and you go, eh, and you press down the gas pedal and you speed on through it and get pulled over and they write you a ticket, what you do is you pay the penalty. You see, what Jesus does, just on a basic level, fundamentally, is he comes and fulfills the law on our behalf. He fulfills all the precepts of the Old Testament for everybody who trusts in him, right? He's earned God's blessing. And then he dies on the cross beneath the wrath of God and fulfills the law there by paying its penalty on behalf of everyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him, who will stop ruling themselves and submit to his rule. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. He fulfills the whole Old Testament. He tells us about this in Luke chapter 22, verses 25 through 27. He's going to tell us, all the Bible is about me. I'm the key piece that makes it all fit together. He says this, O foolish ones, sorry, I should give you context. I just did that location thing. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He is talking to some disciples on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him. And this is what he tells them. O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, that is, the things concerning himself. He says, all the Bible is about me. Paul delights in this truth when he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. All the promises that God made in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the person of Christ. Well, how, how does He fulfill it? We hit on one already in terms of he fulfill, Him fulfilling the law's precepts. He obeys all the law of God perfectly. Not just according to the letter of it, but on a heart level. Remember, that's how he's going to excoriate the scribes and the Pharisees. His next thing is going to be, you think that you've kept the law because you haven't killed anybody? No, 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 no. The law is about more than that. You can't just not kill anybody and keep the law. You have to not get angry at anybody. Because if you get angry with your brother, you've committed heart murder and you've broken the law. Jesus has kept all of it. He keeps the law at a heart level. He never sins. He earns for his people the blessing of God. And it can only be received by faith. He fulfills the precepts of the law. Paul writes in Romans 10 and verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Elsewhere in Matthew, chapter 11 specifically, and earlier in the words of John the Baptist, we are told that the law and the prophets prophesy. That is, that the whole Old Testament 
prophesies. And typically we think of prophecy in terms of, you know, I, it's going to rain tomorrow, and then it rains tomorrow. Okay, declaration and fulfillment, we get it. But the Bible also prophesies in terms of types and patterns and people. Let me try to show you. We've talked about precepts in terms of the law. Let's talk about people. We see in the New Testament that Jesus is the new Adam. Adam failed as the representative of all humanity to obey God in the garden. He was to obey about a tree, and he took fruit and ate it and brought death to the human race. Jesus, the new Adam, when tempted by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, succeeds where Adam failed. And indeed, he obeys God about the tree. Adam plunged humanity into death by his selfishness. Jesus selflessly goes to the cross and dies. And by his obedience, brings life to his people. He is the true and greater Adam. Jesus is the new Moses. We have seen uh, in Matthew, these early chapters, that he wants us to see Jesus as a prophet just like Moses. Remember, Moses' life was threatened as a child. So was Jesus's. Moses came out of Egypt with the Israelites, passed through the waters when the Red Sea was split apart, and came to the mountain of God where he delivered God's word to God's people. Jesus comes out of Egypt, is baptized into the water, comes out, goes through the wilderness, and now he's at the mount, the Sermon on the Mount, delivering God's word to God's people. Moses stands in the breach and pleads with God not to destroy all the people when they have sinned against him. Likewise, Jesus stands in the breach and mediates between God and man, brokering a peace on the basis of his blood. Uh, Moses pled in prayer. Jesus bled and secured for us God's favor. Moreover, Moses led the Exodus out of slavery and Egypt into freedom. Jesus leads a greater Exodus out of slavery to sin and into sonship in the family of God. It brings us into the freedom of obeying and loving God. It is the greater Exodus. Uh, Jesus is the new Aaron. Remember, Aaron was high priest. Book of Hebrews lays this one out for us, chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Aaron, the inferior high priest, anticipates and points forward to Christ, the final great high priest who intercedes for his people. Jesus is the true and greater David. He's great David's greater son. David goes out on behalf of his people and faces a great enemy who wears dragon-like armor. He faces him down and cuts off his head. And all the people share in his victory. Likewise, Jesus faces our greatest foe, that great dragon. 
He defeats him through his death on the cross. He defangs the evil one. And we who have contributed nothing to the victory get to share in it by faith. One pastor adds a few others. That Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mountain but was truly sacrificed for us all. God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. And now we can say to God, Now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who was betrayed by his brothers, cast into a pit, and raised out of the pit, and eventually to the right hand of power. Jesus is at the right hand of the king and he forgives those who have betrayed him and sold him and he uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. That's us. We could go on. Examples could be multiplied. But I hope that you see these characters are meant to point us forward to the Bible's key character, the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfills the Old Testament, the law, and the prophets in terms of its precepts, its people, and of course its predictions. This is the one we immediately think of. And I'm just going to read one for you. We're going to read from Isaiah chapter 53. You're probably familiar with it. This is what it says. Hundreds of years before Christ, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation, his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus fulfills the law in the Old Testament in terms of prediction. He is stricken, smitten, and afflicted for his people, for all who will trust in him. He also fulfills the Old Testament in terms of its pattern. We think of the civil, what's typically called the civil or ceremonial laws. Kept all the civil laws. He fulfills the ceremonial law. He is the one who is truly clean all of his life. And he heals people by taking their iniquities onto himself. He makes us clean. He fulfills the whole sacrificial system by offering himself as a sacrifice once and for all. Perhaps the greatest illustration of this is, in fact, the Passover, which we read about this morning. You know the story. God's people are in slavery in Egypt. God has determined to get glory over Pharaoh, to show himself supreme over Egypt's false gods. And yet, despite all the plagues, Pharaoh will not let God's people go. And so, God sends Moses to tell Pharaoh that there will be one last plague. Darkness will come. God's judgment will come. The firstborn will be slain. And God tells Moses, for those who believe my word, who will receive my grace, there is a protection against this judgment. There is a way to be safe. It says on the tenth day of this month, go and pick out a lamb. Keep it with you in your home. It needs to be blemishless. And then on the fourteenth day, at twilight, kill the lamb. And take its blood and spread it on the doorways of your houses. And then when I am passing through, executing my judgments on all who are in rebellion against me, that's everybody, when I see the blood on the door, I will pass that house over. Judgment will not come to that house. This is what he says, Exodus 12, verse 13, and then we'll skip down to verse 23. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In verse 23, because the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Brothers and sisters, let's not miss how this is fulfilled in Jesus who was killed on Good Friday, which was the day of the Passover. Don't miss the imagery. Don't miss that God, why does God pass over the houses? Why doesn't judgment come to every house? It's not because the people that are inside the houses are really, really impressive and really, really good people. No, it's because of the blood on the doorway. And notice, God doesn't say, I'm going to see the blood on the house and then I'm going to peek my head inside and make sure that there's only worthy people in there. No, the people don't make themselves worthy. It is the blood 
of the Lamb. God checked for the blood on the doorposts. And likewise, none of us is worthy of the kingdom of heaven. None of us is worthy of the presence of God. None of us is worthy of salvation. And yet, when we shelter beneath the blood of the Lamb by faith, we are forgiven. Our sins are passed over. We are brought into the family of God. Indeed, the the blood on the doorways testified that those inside believed the promises of God and would receive His grace. And likewise, we who by faith trust Christ, that the blood on the post of the cross testifies that we are safe because we have sheltered beneath the blood of the one who John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. None of us is worthy. We have all earned the wrath of God, and yet God gives us the opposite of what we deserve. That's what grace is. Getting the opposite of what you deserve. And that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't miss it. Yes, there are things we say eventually once we come to Christ, they should describe us and we should strive to obey the commands of God. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And that's what we want to do. That's what we're called to do. But before we get there, we have to recognize what Jesus is saying. He's saying the only way for you to come into heaven, the only way for you to be right with God is to come to me, poor in spirit. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Non-Christian, I implore you this morning, shelter beneath the blood of the Lamb. Receive the grace of Jesus. Friend, is your hope in this life only? You were made for so much more than that. You were made in the image of God. Worship Him. Glorify Him together with His people forever. Trust Christ. There is hope beyond the grave. The cross, after all, is not the end of the story. If it were, we would not be here. There would be no Christianity. We know the surprise of it all now, don't we? Darkness fell on Friday. Morning continued on Saturday. But on Sunday morning, well, the stone was rolled away. Burial clothes were folded up. The tomb was vacated. Jesus had risen. And this is important. Jesus did not rise to die again. He rose unto eternal life. He is risen. He is ruling and reigning right now at the right hand of God. And He will keep His promises. He will come and bring His kingdom in its fullness. He will eradicate evil from the world. He will judge all who refuse to shelter beneath His blood. He came the first time to bear the sins of all who would trust in Him, and He comes the second time to bring judgment to all who refuse Him. 
He will end evil. He will bring peace. His people will dwell together with Him and God forever. We gather together to worship Him because He is alive. He is our King. We have hope beyond the grave because though our King was crucified, He lives. Not just in our hearts. Bodily. He is risen and like Him we too shall rise. If we come to Him in faith. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Receive the grace of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for the Gospel, for hope beyond the grave. We ask that You would not let us take the gospel for granted. Do not let us presume upon your grace. We thank you that you sent the promised prince to slay the dragon and save your bride, the church. We thank you that Jesus is the humble king who keeps all the law on behalf of his people and pays the law's penalty as our substitute. We thank you that through him we can rightly understand the whole Bible. Pray that you would help us to see and savor Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.